This podcast was recorded on December 15th, 2020. The views and opinions expressed herein are as of the date recorded and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities. Such views and opinions may differ from those of DoubleLine Capital, its affiliates, and are subject to change without notice. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide updates or changes. All right, everybody, welcome to The Sherman Show. I'm Jeff Sherman here today with my co-host, Sam Lau. Hey, hey. And today we have a very special guest, someone I've been following for many years. Uh, You may know him as Dr. Ben Hunt. He's the creator of Epsilon Theory, co-founder and CIO of the Second Foundation Partners. And uh, I used to, I stumbled across his work on some of the stuff um, that he was doing when he was at Salient Partners, where he served as the CIO at Salient. So welcome to the show, Mr. Hunt. Hey, great to be here, Jeff, uh, Sam. Really, really appreciate you guys having me on. Although I got to say, you know, with all the uh, hullabaloo over, you know, who you can call doctor or not, I, I don't. You can't call me doctor. You can't call me doctor. I've, I've got a, I've got a PhD in one of those soft social sciences. So, uh, <laughs> oh yeah, I, I, I said that there was a lot of hullabaloo <laughs> this week. Yeah, and uh, someone who actually, yeah. So again, it's it's soft science, whatever. I, I'll give you the credit for it. Uh, at least it's pile higher and deeper, right? We can at least exactly, say that. exactly. That's all it is, for sure. <laughs> yeah. So um, you know, um, you've you've had a very interesting career too. You spend the gamut in many different things, from uh, being a professor, uh, a tenured professor, nonetheless at NYU, yeah. prestigious uh, SMU as well. Um, you started your investment career subsequent to that. Maybe you could walk us through kind of uh, a day in the life, or or at least a, a short uh, tour of. <laughs> got to where you are today. No, it's it's true. As my, my wife says, I, I have a real problem keeping the job. Uh, and, it, <laughs> and, and she's not wrong. I, I mean, I, I think, Jeff, this, this may describe you as well. And I'm, I'm sure it describes a lot of your, your listeners here. But, you know, I've got that entrepreneurial bug. And, you know, if you've got it, you know, it it, it is a bug. It's not a feature. It's a bug. <laughs> right. So, you know, <laughs> kind of always looking to, to to start something and to you know fix something and and, and turn that into a, to a business idea so yeah I was I was a professor for about 10 years and uh you know I was part of the academic church um <laughs> and it is a church you, you know it, it, you, you mentioned you know having tenure it's 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 crazy right I, I mean I I I think I think the only way for me to have lost my job was to, you know, knock over a 7-Eleven. And, and even then, I'm not, I'm not sure. Uh, and, you know, the, the, the great part about academia is that you're always building your intellectual capital. It's, it's, it's wonderful in that regard. Uh, but, uh, you know, if you've got that entrepreneurial bug, it's a, it's a pretty difficult place to stay. So I, I left academia to uh, co-found a, a software company and uh, sold that uh, or sold my interest in, 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 in that company. And uh, then I you know, did some, some uh, venture capital, some private equity work. The, the common thread of all of this from, from academia to the software company to the, to the initial investing work 
is that I've 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 always been trying to figure out games, and 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 I mean that in the technical sense of the word, right? So so that was my field in political science and and, and economics. And it's kind of a punchline now to say, oh, that's game theory. And so I, I, I don't talk about it much on, on anything, right? Because it, it has become kind of a punchline. But it, what it is, is trying to understand the strategic interactions between human beings and in, in big social settings, whether that's politics and voting, or whether that's investing in markets. So that that's always been the common denominator that and trying to figure out how we as strategic human animals are influenced by words how we're influenced by you know I'll use the $10 term you know unstructured data which just means what we read and what we hear the messages that we are immersed in on a on a, on a daily basis as a social strategic animal so, um, you know, a, a buddy of mine, uh, he had been involved with a software company and he was uh, uh, the head of research at, a, at an investment manager. And he said, you know, we're always talking about games and the games people play. You know, what, do you, what do you think about getting involved in the biggest game in the world, which is, you know, public equity markets? Uh, and so I said, Heck yeah, <laughs> let's do that. So, you know, they had started up a, a, a long short fund uh, with employee money, uh, which, you know, this is 2005. So I'd never been in, you know, public markets or or in investment asset management at all. And 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 so when he said employee money, I thought, oh well, you know, they 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 put together, you know, maybe a hundred grand or something like that. Yeah, this will be fun. And you know, of course, it was like. This is my baptism by fire into this this crazy world, you know that that you know Jeff and Sam you're in and and I've been in, you know, for the past fifteen years. But you know, it was it was a hunk of money. It's like ten million dollars of and it's like, what what kind of employees is this? You know, how does this work? But you know, it was it really was a baptism by fire. I'd never done any uh, public company investing before, but it was. Uh, uh, it was it was it was the opening up of a whole world for me, where where it's 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 all about the game playing, and th that was the conclusion I came to. I mean, I mean, we did well with our fund. We 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 got it up to. I, I mean, we were we were close to a billion bucks, um, but it stopped working in 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 March of two thousand and nine. I, I mean, by that I mean. You know, we did we did really well in 05, 06, 07, and in 08. 08 was a career year, uh, and the money really came flowing in after that. But it was like you went to the wall and, and flipped off the light switch in March of, of 09, where our returns just flatlined. Um, and, you know, you guys have been in the business <laughs> as long as I have, probably longer, and, and so you know exactly what I mean, where from March of 09 onwards, you know, it's not that we lost money, but we didn't make money. I mean, we were long short, so our, our shorts got killed. Our longs, you know, basically went up with the market. We never lost money for clients, something that I'm still, you know, extremely proud of. Mm -hmm. But, you know, our our investment approach, which was, you know, fundamentals and 
understanding catalysts and, you know, a, 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 I'll call it a, a, a value approach to understanding investing. Man, that just didn't work anymore. And so what we did at the, at the end of, of 2011 was we gave all the money back, which, again, is something I... I I think my wife probably still hasn't forgiven me for that, but it was, uh, you know, in, in retrospect, I think it was, I know it was the best thing to do for my career. And, and, and I think the, the most intellectually honest thing to do too. Uh, so because we gave all the money back before we did lose anybody, any money. Uh, and I, and I've spent the last eight years trying to figure out, well, what, what does, account for, I'll use this word, alpha, right? I, I mean, how is it possible anymore to, 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 to invest, so to, to do better than the, than the, the broad market averages? I, I mean, quality, value, these, 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 these ideas that I think we've received as almost like church-like dogma, what I can tell you for sure is they haven't worked for 11 years now. And, right. and, and so, so what I've been trying to figure out, and this goes back to the game playing in the technical sense of the word, it goes back to how we are immersed in words and narratives and stories. I've been trying to figure out, and this has been my professional career for 35 years now, how are we as social animals particularly in this biggest game in the world, public equity markets, how are we systematically impacted by the messages and the words we hear? And why has that become, my view, a much more important driver of what happens in markets than anything to do with fundamentals or either at the macro level or at the individual company level? So anyway, that's that's the long tour. I, I know you just wanted something brief, but it's it's that 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 is kind of what threads it together and and where I am now, which is you know trying to figure this stuff out. Particularly by stuff, I mean how do the narratives we hear impact us as investors, both at an individual level, but also as at the 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 market, the macro level. So on on that note, um, and I think it's a perf perfect introduction because that's the direction I, I, I thought we'd end up going today. But I, I think of the old Justice Scalia quote where he started off at one point saying words have meaning, then somehow, you know, it became that words no longer have meaning, right? And it's like, <laughs> man, when when a Supreme Court court justice whose life is on you know parsing words tells you words no, no longer have meaning. I think it's a perfect example of of narratives, right? Yeah. And you know, we we we've done a, a few interviews with Professor Schiller, who, yep. who put out a great book on narrative economics, even yep, where I know him well. the field of yeah, the field of economics was that was just blasphemous since we're on this religious topic, right? <laughs> it was blasphemous yep. to come out and say that oh, it's not done by some you know stochastic dynamic equilibrium model, right? right. And so at the end of the day, 
you know, I, I think what, what you're describing here is what a lot of investors have struggled with, especially the traditional values. And they have this dogmatic approach. And every time there's a month where value outperforms growth, all of a sudden, it's like, oh, is this the pivotal moment? Right, right, but, right, right. But that's another narrative, right? And so let, let's go back into how, how you set this up and you're thinking about it, too, because you're talking about the games. And, you know, um, and so what are these pervasive narratives today as you're looking at it? Because it has been difficult for especially a long short manager or someone who's value oriented to try to generate above market returns. So what what are you thinking is being accepted as a narrative today and why should our listeners care? Right. Well, I'll, I'll answer the last part first because they should care because this is <laughs> most of your listeners, I suspect. And and certainly, you know, you and I, Jeff, we, you know, we're responsible for OPM. We're responsible for other people's money. And we can, you know, gnash our teeth and bemoan the fact that, you know, market prices are, have been and are increasingly divorced from market fundamentals. And we can, you know, like I say, rend our clothes and 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 yell about that. But but at the end of the day, if you are responsible for other people's money. Uh, or for your own family's money and kind of this law, this, this viewpoint, you know, you gotta, you gotta appreciate what, what is, <laughs> you know, whether you like it or not, this is what is. Right. And, and, and so what I want to do is try to distinguish between, I, I think the, the, the framework for understanding narrative, and, and then we can talk about some of the specific narratives that, that are, uh, you know, waxing and waning and, 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 and are really in play. And, and I think it's, but I think it's important to talk about the framework first because this is why I, I, this is why I, I named, you know, the the blog that I write and, and I call I call it epsilon theory, because that term epsilon is at the end of every econometric formula, right? And it's at the end of the the formula that that all investors pay attention to, whether they know it or not which is that your returns are alpha, your idiosyncratic contribution, your edge, your smarts, right? Plus beta, right? The degree to which you are going along with, you know, let's call it a broader market move. And people usually stop there. They say, okay, what's, what's, what's the beta in my portfolio and what's the alpha? But there's a third term. There's a third term in that equation and it's epsilon, it's plus E, plus epsilon. And you'll find that in every econometric formula, and epsilon is the error term. <laughs> it's it's what's left over, right? When you've when when you finished with your systematic analysis for alpha and beta. And most people don't ever look at the risk of the epsilon, the standard. Oh my god! That, right? Oh, yeah, that misspecification of the model. But anyway, I won't get too nerdy on our audience today. But I love where you're going. <laughs> right. I love where yeah. you're going. Yeah. But, but the, the thing is that error, that epsilon piece, right? Part of it is just, you know, it's randomness and, you know, we can use lots of $10 words like stochastic and all this, this kind of stuff. But what, what I'm suggesting is that this behavioral component to markets, what I'm calling strategic interaction, what I'm calling game playing, what you would call in a poker game, playing the players and not just playing the cards, that's not captured in alpha and beta. It lives somewhere there in that epsilon term. But there are rules to this, 
and that's what I mean. I, I want to focus on kind of what is the framework for thinking about narrative and the way it 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 impacts all of us, right? It's it's not just random. That's that's a it's a it's an issue I have with a lot of I'll call it behavioral economics, where people just kind of wave their hands at it and so and say, oh well, you know, human beings do this, you know, cognitive dissonance or you know, they 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 do that. They frame things poorly, like it's just kind of oh, not exactly random, but you know, sometimes you have this pathology in your decision making, and sometimes you don't. And we can't really say that there are any rules to it. We just know it it happens lots of times. And 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 that's what I'm I'm trying to talk about in epsilon theory that that epsilon term where this strategic interaction where this game playing exists, there are rules to it. It's not just error. It's not just random. It's not just something we kind of wave our hands at and say, oh, those crazy people, the madness of crowds, blah, blah, blah. No, there, there are real rules to this stuff. And the the primary rule, the game, what I like to call the game of markets is, and you can you know, look this up on Wikipedia and all this stuff. It's called the common knowledge game, the common knowledge game. And the, the, the common knowledge game, common knowledge is not the same thing as public knowledge. You know, public knowledge is something that's out there for anybody to, to know. Now, common knowledge is something a little bit different. Common knowledge is what we all believe that we all believe. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's that it's that second level of knowledge. It's it's it is what we all believe that we all believe. And it's funny, the first guy to really write about the common knowledge game, he didn't call it that, was was actually John Maynard Keynes. So, you know, he, he writes this his Is that the whole beauty contest that exactly, he's right now? Yeah, okay. Exactly. So 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 what modern game theory would call the common knowledge game is what Keynes called the, he called it the, the, the newspaper beauty contest. Because what, what, what Keynes wrote about in the 1930s, you know, Keynes was actually a really good investor himself. You know, nobody pays attention to that in academia, right? Because, you know, you don't read those chapters in his books, but he actually managed money. He, he ran the endowment for, for, for King's College uh, over, over at Oxford for a lot of years and did really well. And so he he really put this stuff into practice. And by stuff, I mean, he said, well, what are the rules for crowd behavior? Y you know, we, we talk about speculators and we talk about, uh, or he, he used that word speculators. You, 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 you still hear that today in a, in a really disparaging term. Uh, but what he was talking about was playing the players like we would talk about it in poker. And, and, and what he said was, you know, when you're, when you're looking at a stock, you're, you don't just say, okay, who do I think, what, who, what do I think is the best stock, right? It's, it, it'd be his, this is an example of his newspaper beauty contest. You know, if you're running this contest where, where you've got to, to pick the picture of the pretty girl, and it's, it's not, you know, this this is going back in the 30s. This was kind of their social media of the day. Uh, you don't pick who you think is the prettiest, right? For the same reason that you don't pick the stock that, that you think is the best. No, you 
you want to you want to pick the stock that you think everyone else thinks is the prettiest. But but here's the here's the the, the catch on that. What you realize pretty quickly is that, you know, am I the only one who's figured this game out? In, in other words, are are all of you other, you know, game players or 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 stock pickers? Are you all so stupid that you you're still picking stocks on the basis of of who you think is the prettiest girl or the prettiest stock? No, I, I mean we're all smart enough to figure out how the game is. So so what Keynes is saying, well, that leads you to the to the third level, right? Where you're you're not trying to 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 pick the stock that you think other people like on a fundamental basis. We're all looking at everybody else, knowing that everybody else is looking at everybody else. Right. So so what Keynes said was it it really is not what you think about a stock. And it's not what you think the consensus is. It's not what you think everyone else thinks about the stock. It's what everyone thinks that everyone thinks about a stock. And it's a, and it's a weird concept to wrap your head around, but once you do, you, 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 you start seeing the world in a really different way. And what I mean by that is that what Keynes said, and this is the, the hallmark of this common knowledge game, is that what drives common knowledge, what creates common knowledge, is what we would call in game theory a missionary, a famous person, right? It, 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 it can certainly be a politician. It can also be a central banker. It can be anybody who can get in front of a camera or behind a microphone and tell everyone what they all should know. That's what drives and that's what creates common knowledge. So what we have today is this very powerful common knowledge system where whether it's, you know, Jay Powell or a Trump tweet or any of the talking heads on CNBC, if you think of them as missionaries, you think of them as creating a narrative as shaking their finger at you and telling you how to think about the world, some story for the world, you start to see how these stories, they really take on a life of their own. And you can really see how impactful they are in a very rational way, in a really rules-driven way, and change our own investment behavior. So that that's the framework that you know is behind this, this, this analysis of, of narrative. Well, I think when you look back in that, at least, um, you know, kind of my own cursory knowledge of history of financial markets is that there's always been a lot of this, whether it yes. was, you know, we look for the the disciple, right? Um, you know, the one who's uh, proselytized us all in our thoughts and, you know, whether that's the Warren Buffetts, right? Yep. Uh, yep. These superstar investors, right? Or, you know, it was the masters of the universe in the late 80s, 90s, the hedge funds, right? Um, so right. The, they became the uh, uh, the omnipotent people who, who had everything. Then it shifted to central bankers. And then uh, on top of that, you know, now, you know, I, I feel like the narratives are are going quicker. And it's it's if you take any given calendar year, for instance, it's that, you know, what is that flavor of the year? Was it, you know, is it the cryptocurrency? Is it the cannabis stocks? It's, you know, what is this kind of thematic trade? And 
when we see a lot of those, they be very they they tend to be very boom and bust. But yep. you you reference March of '09. Since March of '09, there's really been this huge momentum rally. And again, how one defines it, you know, is 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 arbitrary. But it has been this ever shifting narrative. And I, I wonder as you think about it, is there something about March of 2020? You think that shifts that narrative as well, where we saw the creation of more retail accounts and you know people um, new online speculation and things. So is that is that shifting the dynamic today, or is it just another one of those kind of flavor of the years? No, it it, it shifts it in a fundamental way, but it but it shifts it to to accentuate the divorce, the canyon between real world and market world. And, and what I mean by that is. You know, it's no accident that Keynes came up with these ideas about how crowds respond and act in markets when the fundamentals don't seem to make any sense anymore. Because he's writing in the 1930s, which was really the last period of time where we had such, you know, overwhelming amounts of debt, you know, washing around in the world, uh, where you had overwhelming, I'll call it, impact of, of, of politics and uh, wealth inequality, you know, political seismic shockwaves that for, for, for Keynes as well in the 1930s created this enormous disjuncture between the fundamentals, what he thought was kind of the economic reality, and what actually happened in markets. So, so I, I think that's, you know, I don't think there's any accident that's that's the case, but What's made it different today, what's different from the 1930s, I think, is that I'll call it change in technology. And, and, and what I want to focus on are the, the, not just the, you know, the dopamine machines that we all carry around in the form of our, our smartphones that, that, that present us this megaphone in our ear where missionaries are, are constantly shouting at us right, with their with their ideas and their opinions, and their messages. But it's also the 24 seven, quote unquote, news channels, because there's there. Like, I'll, I'll pick on CNBC a little a little bit more. There's not a lot of fundamental economic news. In a given day or week, right, there's just not. Uh, you know, maybe you'll have a couple of companies report earnings, you know, after the close. Uh, that, by the way, we'll have to come back to that. That's an interesting story about why companies report earnings after the market close. They didn't used to. That changed about 10 years or so ago. And there's a there's a narrative media reason for that. But it's there's not a lot of news every day. You know, all right, at 8.30, maybe we'll have some 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 economic macro data come out. That's about it. So, so how are we going to fill the time? How are we going to, what are we going to do with this 24-7, you know, again, quote-unquote news channel? And the answer, of course, is you have to have a series of people come in and present their opinions as if that were, were news, right? You know, what's what's your story about this sector? What's, what's uh, you know, let's have, you know, Uncle Warren come on and talk about the stock market or the stocks he's interested in. It's it, it's this constant flow of what I like to call fiat news. It's not fake news, but it's opinion presented as if it were news, right? And so this, 
what you see then with the the always on uh, not just quote unquote news services, but now we have the always on trading vehicles like 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 a Robin Hood where and, and this is no joke. I mean, the interface here, the UX, as we'd call it now, you know, forget UI. Now it has to be a user experience, the UX. And what that means is you treat it like a game. It, it really is a dopamine machine, right? Where you, oh, you've you've mastered your first equity trade, want to level up and try some call options. I, I mean, that's 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 literally how it's presented to you. So Yes, part of this is like it was in the 1930s, these big structural issues that create this gulf between real world and market world. The other part of this is the development of these technologies that are very successful because they <laughs> they deliver a nice little jolt of uh, dopamine to us and you know we're hardwired to respond to that. Hey Ben, you uh, you piqued my interest there. I want to bring you back around to it on the the after hours you know, yeah. earnings reporting and the narrative around that. Yeah, sure. So it, it it's funny when you when you, if you go back, you know, even ten years ago, much less twenty years ago, most companies reported their earnings in the morning, maybe before the market opened, but you know, a lot of companies just reported it in the middle of the day. Right? It wasn't it wasn't a, a an outside of market hours kind of thing. And that that dramatically shifted. Yeah, I'll say, you know, like I say, this has been going on for about 20 years or so ago. But what you see is that I'll call them the story stocks, uh, typically, you know, technology, media, telecom, you know, increasingly consumer discretionary. These are the companies that first made the change to reporting their earnings after the market close. Uh, in fact, a lot of you know a fair number of industrial companies you know, still report their earnings uh, before the market opens. What what I want to suggest to you was that it was a very conscious decision to report earnings uh, after the market close, and the, the the conscious decision was made in order to impact the narrative around those earnings you know what what did the earnings announcement mean and the 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 driver of all this is the the, the schedule in the business of wall street so by reporting earnings after the market close uh, you have an opportunity then to I'll say impact or influence the sell side analyst reports that are then written that evening and published the next morning before the market opens. So you have a essentially it's, it's like a news cycle uh, on that you talk about in politics or in the evening news. The way to control the news cycle for your earnings announcement is to make the announcement, have the call, have the Q&A with analysts after the market close, review their piece, tell them what they should be writing, essentially tell them what they should be writing, pointing them in the direction of what metrics are important, what pro forma metrics are important, and then have them write that up the next morning. Case in point, you know, my, my poster child for this is, is Salesforce, right? So uh, Mark Benioff, goes on Kramer uh, four times a year. 
those four times a year are after his quarterly earnings announcement. And of course, Kramer is big bud. It's always buy, buy, buy. The, 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 the magic of, of, of Salesforce is that they were able to create a pro forma metric on which their company and the stock price would be judged. That pro forma metric is, 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 is funny. They, they call it pro forma net revenue growth, right? And, and I, I, I honestly don't know what it, what it, what it, what it, what that means. And, and the answer is what that, what that phrase means is however Mark and the, you know, the rest of the management team define it to, to, to mean. So until I figured this out, you know, I was chronically, I was always short Salesforce in my, in, in my hedge fund. And, you know, I'd always listen to the, to the, of course, to the, to the earnings call because we're fundamental investors, blah, blah, blah. And, and I, and I, and I'd hear them give their, their, you know, their quarterly report where, you know, again, they would have a, you know, big losses on any sort of gap approach, but, you know, they'd make, you know, a penny worth of earnings on a, on this, on their, on their, their pro forma basis. And they'd talk about, you know, pro forma, you know, net revenue growth, you know, up 15%, you know, the way we, 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 we make up that statistic. And I'd always think to myself, ah, excellent. This, this stock is going to get shattered tomorrow. Oh my God. I mean, I'm finally going to get paid on, on the short position. And I come in the next morning, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd open up my inbox all excited to see, you know, everyone saying, oh my God, what a disaster for Salesforce. And then I'd, I'd see the analyst reports and, you know, they're, they're, they're typically three or four analysts, you'd call them the acts, you know, in a particular stock. They're the ones that people read and listen to. And, and I'd see these analyst reports and it was like we had heard two different earnings calls because they'd say, yeah, 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 I've got a gap, blah, this was that and that, so what, right? The, you know, pro forma net revenue growth, man, look at that. And I'd sit there, and this would be at, call it, you know, these would come out at eight o'clock in the morning or 7.30 in the morning. Mark is going to open at 9.30. And I'd sit there and I'd realize, well, hell, I'm going to get my teeth kicked in again today. <laughs> right? and, and, and so finally I learned that, that you you can be short Salesforce stock 250 trading days out of the year and you'll be fine. Actually, most years you'll make a little money. You got to be long Salesforce the day after the earnings call. Because, you know, and hats off to Benioff. I, I mean, he figured this out before most people did. Um, I, I, it's, it's, it's really phenomenal the way that you know, you can change your whole pattern of creating metrics, uh, working with the sell side to make sure it's your narrative, your way of understanding your company performance that is uh, presented to the public. Combine that with an active timing and media session around the, the news cycle. And my God, it works. So... Uh, well that's what I mean. No, as, as you as you describe that too, and you, you I kind of think of it as like 
fake reporting and I think about what we've been living through for the last, you know, um, let's call it just let's just call it prior to the last administration where yeah. there's this accepted phrase of fake news, right? And it's not the opinions that are fake. It's not the op-ed, which I, I would argue maybe an op-ed is fake news. You, you should disclose it as such. But the idea that anything that's not your opinion or doesn't, doesn't confirm your opinion, your narrative, your view of the world is fake. And so isn't that really just an extension of, of what you're describing here? Oh, yeah, man. I, I, I mean, politicians have known this forever. Right. This this is why we talk about news cycles and, you know, in every campaign or every administration, they're always talking about, OK, how do we how do we control the news cycle for this day, for this week? And there's there there there's a pattern. There's a business to this. But it's a, it, it's a pattern in a business that. Unless you're focused on looking for it. You, you you don't see it, right? I mean, and that's the way we're hardwired as human beings, as 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 social animals. We we hear a message and we go, huh, all right, that's interesting. And it's so hard to step back and ask yourself, all right, why am I hearing this now? You know, why is this information being presented to me in this particular format or scheduling approach? And 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 the answer, as often as not is that it's advantageous to the people who are presenting the messages. Sorry, I was on mute. Sorry. <laughs> that's no, the, no, 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 no. That's the 2020 uh, thing that people say anymore, right? I was on mute. Uh, so as you think about it, too, and you're trying to digest this as an investor, the shifting narratives and, you know, the, the whole idea of the quality, the value um, isn't as relevant as it used to be. Um, how are you thinking about the kind of post-pandemic world? And so obviously, you know, we've had this huge boom in technology. Healthcare has been a benefactor here. Um, how are you thinking about the shift here? I mean, is this truly one of those turning points? You know, we've discussed on the podcast many times that is this the Howe and Strauss, you know, kind of fourth turning, one of these pivotal points here. But as someone who thinks about the psychology and thinks about, you know, what other people are thinking about, about thinking about, right? Yeah. As you do that, how do you think about, you know, the 2021s or the next decade? Sure. Um, is this one that can be prosperous like we saw? Are we going to be mired um, in something like the 30s, uh, given the, the debt backlog? How, how are you processing all of that today? Well, let me approach in two different directions. The, the first direction I'll talk about is the difference between what I'll call our, our micro narratives and macro narratives. And by micro narratives, I mean the business of Wall Street. I mean that that every day, if you're an analyst or a sales guy for one of the big banks, you've got to come up with a new story about something to buy. And and the way that's evolved today is typically around sectors. I mean, I mean, you know, with a few the exception of a few kind of celebrity stocks, the the business of Wall Street is not really about creating narratives around individual companies. It's much more around creating narratives around uh, sectors, and I'm, I'm talking about the, the the equity markets here. So you know you'll 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 want to have this theme or your story of okay now's the time to buy financials, or you know or now's the time to buy you know early cyclical stocks, 
right? So it's that's that's what I refer to as the the daily the daily grind the 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 daily uh, uh, narrative storytelling of Wall Street, and that never changes, right? All these stories that I've described to you, all these narratives like oh buy financials or you know buy consumer discretionary or uh, sell energy, right? They're those those narratives they're they're like sine waves, right? They're they're they they just wax and wane. The typical life cycle for one of these narratives is call it, you know, three months from start to finish before it's replaced with another sector or or uh, similar, um, uh, you know, micro narrative. Um, so that that doesn't change, and that 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 really is just the. You know the the lifeblood of Wall Street is to create these stories around at the at this kind of micro level. So nothing about that changes, and it's just a matter of okay, which one of these micro narratives is rising and which one is falling, and 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 so there's that. Macro narratives are a little bit different, right? They they persist for a long, long time. And the one that's persisted, as we've been discussing for the last 11 years, is, you know, I'll put the, the narrative simply is, is as, you know, it's the central bank stupid, right? Yeah, that, that so long as they have got the markets back, and so long as that's the common knowledge, that whether you think the, whether you think Jay Powell's got your back or not, the common knowledge that you have to acknowledge is this is what everybody thinks that everyone else thinks. And so to succeed, you've got to act as if, you know, you believe it as well. The real issue, and this gets to your point about inflection points, is when do these big macro narratives change? Because if you believe in your heart of hearts that Jay Powell has got your back, you're in for one world of hurt if, when that big macro narrative shifts, right? So it's so. So what what I'm suggesting is that it's important to be aware of both the micro and the macro narratives. I don't wouldn't advocate anyone to ever fight one of these narratives, and right now that means you don't fight the Fed. What I am saying though is don't take that into your heart. Don't. <laughs> Don't believe it to be the truth. Just understand this is what the common knowledge is, and be looking for those inflection points. No, I think I think that's important too because it's the thing of um, you know you you have to kind of ride a little bit of the wave, as you said, exactly. running OPM, right? You know yep. that's the biggest responsibility in the world, and they hire you to make some of these decisions. So it's balancing the fundamental. It's understanding the narrative. It's saying that okay. You know, the shifting narrative, whether it, this day it's a vaccine or, you know, if it's uh, the reopening or it's the shutdown, you know, th those are those are shifting like the winds. However, you have to still have a piece of that. Right. And yeah. so I think that that's the hardest thing for investors to really 
to follow. And then you have the 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 Joneses, right? The idea that your neighbor has has long Tesla, and then your other neighbors long the Tesla calls, right? Yep. It's doing even better, right? And what kind of Luddite just trades stocks when you can amplify your returns with leverage and 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 options, right? So I think that you know it's very important to really identify. Are you in it for the long haul? Are you in it for the fundamentals, the belief in it? Or are you really just doing that, the belief of the other people believe that that's the belief they should have? And so I think, you know, when when I stumbled across your your research back at Salient, when you just, you know, there was a lot of eye-popping different analyses that you put together. And I think, you know, yeah. as, as I think about, you know, some of the stuff you've done out there is, you know, really creating an independent thought, just saying like, look, you know, we still have to invest, we have to make money, but you don't have to buy on these. It's not heresy to say that, you know, the Fed may step away one day. So as you think about what we've done, you know, since the, the 08 crisis and mm -hmm. the involvement in um, of central bankers around the world, what do you kind of see as being some of the end game? What changes that belief system? Yeah. Um, because yeah. they are the, the masters of the universe, right? So go ahead. Yeah. So every every central bank action for you know since since the, the the great financial crisis has been geared towards addressing deflation right i mean and that's 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 what what all of the toolkit all of this has been to try to address a deflationary environment because i look i i get it that deflation is the worst possible outcome for for asset prices and for a political utility like you know, I think our capital markets have become. You know, you know deflation is the killer. But it it does. Okay, how can you grow all the time if people are not going to consume? And if you know exactly. prices are going down, you wait to consume. So it exactly. it, it is heresy, right? Still, yeah. because it is destroying that belief system that we always have to go. We have to do these things, right? Because that's what we've that that's what we've taught everybody. That's exactly right. So uh, what what changes that is if in the real world you you have inflation, right? That that's what changes everything. And 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 that's the other thing. And and I know, you know, your firm is 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 well aware of this, right? That the one thing that I, I believe any investor like, uh, you know, you're responsible for your own money, your family's money. Uh, you're a foundation. You do have that long-term viewpoint, right? I think the one thing you've got to get roughly right, you don't have to get it exactly right. You don't have to time it to the to the day or the week or the month. But what you've got to get right is, are we in a deflationary world or an inflationary world? If you If you just get that basic question right, You'll be fine. You'll be fine. You really will. But if you get that basic question wrong, then you're not going to be fine. And and so the, the the big question, right, is in 2021, going forward, right, are we at an inflection point in terms of fiscal policies creating inflation in the real world, right? I, I I think that's that's that 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 core question that 
every investor responsible for any amount of money and whether it's yours or other people's that's what we got it that's that that's what you've got to be on the watch for and and and, and, and wrestling with uh anyway that's that's my view on this that because that's what breaks it right i i i don't think i don't think there is any deflationary shock i don't think there's any deflationary shock imaginable or that i can imagine that can break the story that the fed and other central banks are large and in charge and they've got your back i don't believe though that these toolkits and everything they've developed are useful in fact i think they're 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 very counterproductive if in fact you get inflation in the real world so that's what i think breaks the story whether that happens or not i don't know uh, I think there are, I can see paths in which that could happen, but I think that's what you need to be looking for if your question is, okay, what breaks the story of central banks being large and in charge? Yeah, and there's a lot to unpackage there, especially around your comments on the inflection point, perhaps with the uh, inflation deflation story, because it just seems like in the blink of an eye, we went to about 15 or 16% of the US GDP as a as deficit you know, through yes. the fiscal efforts and 128% of debt to GDP, you know, federal debt to GDP. And then what was it, a 20 plus percentage point year over year growth in the M2 uh, uh, supply. So we'll we'll wait and see and see if uh, the inflation bugs actually uh, get their moment in the sun here. But, <laughs> yeah. you know, before we go, before we get to my uh, favorite part of the show, Ben, um, I did want to talk about uh some of the, the the positive things you've been doing for the community, and uh, you know, you started out the segment by talking about you you've always been you're always wanting to fix something, you know. So yeah. I, I wanted to give you this chance to talk a little bit about uh, your efforts around frontline heroes, and especially in this in this pandemic world that we're living in. Um, I appreciate that, Jeff. I we I think it's so important to get involved at a i like to call it your pack right at a at a at a community level and try to do bottom up things uh, i think there's there's so much that gets in the way when you try to attach yourself to you know a political tribe or 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 you know some one of these other kind of big entities that well you know there's there's a lot of conversation there but but what i've what i've really tried to do is to find a way to get uh, PPE, particularly the the uh, N95 masks, directly to uh, healthcare workers and uh, uh, EMTs uh, all all across the country, and uh, it it really is the sort of thing that we c- we can all make a difference in something like this, right? We we uh, we we had the opportunity to kind of set up like this. Call this underground railroad of PPE supplies, and and you know to 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 get them not in some trickle down way, but to to send them directly to the doctors and the nurses and the EMTs and their their teams. But I really think that's the kind of thing where we can all make a difference, whether it's a, a local food bank, right, or a you know a, a local school or 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 some way to, to, to just help your neighbor and 
I, I think that a lot of people, and this is part of that, that the constant messaging that we're inundated with, that you know we're told all the time that well you you can't really make a difference unless you are you know helping the Democrats win this or helping the Republicans win that, and and that's just so wrong. It really is these small acts of helping your neighbor that that that's what changes the freaking world. So anyway, that's that's what that's what I I, I try to do, and that's what I I I hope everyone who listens to this to this show tries to do um, tries to do themselves. Nah, that's that's really great, and you know uh, it is. It's it's the you can't change the world, you know, from the the macro level, but you can have an impact, and I think that's the important thing. And you know, I I encourage everyone to really think about that too in this holiday season. You see all these advertisements and things about small business and everything. We know people are suffering, and so um, in general, you know, the, the things you can do to help is help your neighbor, help your community, and you know, really really just try to make this a better place. I think as we all go into 2021, that's something to really think about. So Ben, we really appreciate your time today and making that, you know, ending this on a thoughtful note. You're very thoughtful. Um, before we jump into Sam's favorite part of the show, maybe you could tell folks too about how to get access to the stuff you write about because it's very fascinating to me. Well, thanks, Jeff. So I'm, the name of the, the, the website is Epsilon Theory. And that's my handle on Twitter. So I'm I'm all Epsilon Theory all the time. Um, so Ben.hunt at EpsilonTheory.com or just go to the Epsilon Theory website or you can find me on Twitter on the same handle. Perfect. And it's not an error to find you. It's not the error term. It's it's really digging <laughs> into the error term and what it all means. So uh, we appreciate that. But before we let you hop, Sam, why don't you give him the introduction to your favorite part? All right, and that favorite part of the show, Ben, is Sherman Says. Where I will offer a series of alternating prompts to which I hope to elicit a top of mind response. So I'm going to start out with Sherman on Purple State. Purple State. Um. What we should all strive for, have some unity, have something together. I'm trying to keep this on that positive note there. We shouldn't define ourselves to one category. We should listen to one another. Let's try to figure this thing out because, you know, you, you don't short the American spirit, as I always say. And um, if we look at each other and realize we're just human beings, we're neighbors, we're all in this together, uh, we, we can we can do we can affect change. So that's my little uh, mantra for the day. All right, and I'm going to shift. I don't think that was one word either, Sam. It wasn't one word, but we've uh, long since uh, passed that <laughs> that goal. So I'm going to bring it over to Ben with crony capitalism. <laughs> uh, endemic. There, I'll stick to, to to one word. I'm like I'm like Diogenes. I say I'm going by one word. I, I, Diogenes was looking for an honest man. I keep looking for honest capitalism, and I'm having a harder and harder time defining it. <laughs> keep searching keep searching back to Sherman with residential evictions precipice uh, over the bend with most useful farm animal <laughs> for those of uh, you don't know uh, Ben is a uh, novice or uh, 
what's the word you use? Dilettante? A dilettante. I'm a dilettante farmer, right? So, so the most useful farm animal is a dog. The, the most fun farm animal is the goat. And the most evil farm animal is the chicken. <laughs> I got to ask, the, why, is it, why is it the most evil? They're, they're, they're little dinosaurs, man. That, that's, that's all they are. They got their dinosaur brains and they'll, I mean, they, they, they're, the pecking order is a real thing. They'll, they'll, they'll kill each other in a heartbeat just, just for fun. It's awful. Yeah, I just uh, the dinosaur just made me think of Napoleon Dynamite and the chicken having large talons too. So I'm going to pass this one back to Jeff with uh, wealth gap. Well, I mean, U.S. hegemony. That's you, Ben. Uh, fading. Fundamentals. Is that Jeff or me? I'm, I'm just thinking it's for me. I'll, <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll, I'll say. Still relevant. Electoral college. Uh, changeable. And the last one for each of you, uh, starting with Sherman, mRNA. Miraculous. Actually, that was uh, confusing. So I'm giving you a different one here. Uh, what I said was confusing. So I'm giving you a, a, a different one here, Ben. Uh, D-I-T-F-D. <laughs> The uh, the slogan for our times. <laughs> and for up, those folks. who don't know that, feel free yeah. to Google that. That's right. You'll have to, you'll have to yeah. Google B-I-T-F-D. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And it is not by the dip. So no, it's not. It's anyway, not. so uh, Ben, it was a pleasure. Um, as I said, I've uh, been following your work for many years. So keep up the great work. Keep uh, keep it thoughtful. And, you know, uh, we'd love to have you back to dig in deeper at some point in the future, too. But we appreciate the time you spent with us. I'm sure this was uh, enlightening for uh, some of our listeners there. So, again, uh, this is uh, Dr. Ben Hunt. He is a real doctor, not a medical <laughs> doctor, but he is a real doctor. <laughs> and we did we did see the certificate. Um, Dr. Ben Hunt from Epsilon Theory. Uh, the work you and Rusty do is great. So keep up the good work. Uh, for those of you also looking for more of uh, The Sherman Show, you can find it out there on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, um, Spotify. Um, you can catch it on Lau's website. We got all kinds of places for it. So take a look for it out there and uh, we'll follow up with you in the new year, 2021. We're looking forward to it. And, uh, you know, if you haven't uh, looked out at uh, what the work that uh, Dr. Hunt's done to uh, with his frontline heroes, you should take a look at that as well. So thanks again, Ben. We appreciate the time you spent with us today. Thanks, guys. I had a blast. presentation represents DoubleLine's intellectual property. No portion of this presentation may be published, reproduced, transmitted, or rebroadcast in any media in any form without express written permission of DoubleLine. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. To receive permission from DoubleLine, please contact media at DoubleLine.com. Neither DoubleLine nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability therefor. 
including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. Double Line is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. The receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any Double Line entity or individual to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Double Line entity. The portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk, but does not imply low risk. Copyright 2020, Double Line Capital.